start our time together by uh, praying uh, for our nation and for our church. There's just been so much going on uh, in the world, uh, in our nation, and as well as our church. And so uh, next week, we're going to address some of these issues from uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, but today I just would like to stop and pray as we get started. So join me, please. Father, we're grateful to be together this morning. We thank you that this room is full. And we ask God, um, as people joining together our hearts, that you would hear our prayers and our cries of lament and mourning. Uh, For the world, Father, we see violence and anger and greed and, and terrorism, Father, and we are concerned. And we plead with you to be merciful to this world we pray for peace. We pray for justice. We, we pray for the Middle East and ask that in the nations where there is so much violence and death that you would bring peace and forgiveness and justice. We pray for Europe, Lord, where there's been, where there's been so much terrorism and fear. And, and it seems as if this fear and the anger and terrorism is only growing, God. We pray that you would restrain evil around the world. That you would give wisdom to people who are trying to stop the evil, and governments, and leaders, Father, give wisdom and leadership and guidance to, Father. And we pray for our nation, Lord, that is so torn and divided right now by anger and strife and and violence and death. And God, we plead with you again for mercy, for grace, for humility, for empathy. Father, we we pray for those friends and neighbors and loved ones that, that we know uh, that are minorities and are, are feeling scared to go into their communities and after all that's happened. And we pray for first responders also, God, for police, for firemen, people who have to put on a uniform and they're terrified to go do their job. And God, we pray for grace and mercy and protection for all these folks and that the, the grace and power of your love would tear down these walls and that those people that love you in our nation would show tangible examples of what it means to follow you and offer empathy and love and grace and understanding. Father, in our church, our hearts mourn and break with words that we find nearly impossible to even speak as we mourn and grieve with Megan Thielbar, who's lost her 17-year-old daughter. We don't know what to say in times like this. For a life so young, taken so early, God, we, we... We can hardly comprehend the pain and suffering she must feel now and will feel her whole life. And so we lift up Megan, and in these moments, Father, where we do not even know how to pray, that your Holy Spirit would sustain her, protect her, guard her. Please, God, and help us as a church to minister well to her and her family and the siblings and grandparents, God. We lift up the McDonald family and pray for for Chad and the family as they've lost uh, their father and grandfather and at an age far too young. We pray for them as they mourn and grieve that you will be present with them and granting grace and mercy. We pray for Ashlyn Kirby as, as she recuperates this week from uh, a difficult week and pray for her healing, Lord, and for the, the Kirby family, Glenn and Kristen, that you'll be with them. And Father, now as we open up your word to such an important topic and passage about marriage, I just pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have to say, that in humility we would humble ourselves 
and hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. When I left for vacation, I spoke on this subject from 1 Peter 3, verse 7, because we've been preaching through uh, the book of 1 Peter uh, on the topic of the husband who loves Jesus in verse 7. And I kind of skipped over the passage of verse 1 through 6, waiting until this week to get back from vacation to tackle this. Uh, this is a very, very difficult passage. When we read it in just a minute, you'll hear why. Um, <laughs> it's talking to wives. Uh, we're talking about the wife who loves Jesus today. Let's read the passage and then get into it. Peter, 1 Peter, uh, the apostle, writes this in verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I'll read verse 7 as well. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this passage is shocking. Can we just admit this up front? I mean, this is the year that the first time a woman has been nominated as a candidate for president of the United States, and we just read that. And that's shocking, but what I want to impress upon you this morning is that this passage was equally shocking in the day and age that it was written and read because they didn't blush at all in verses 1 through 6. That was a given, okay? Of course, wives submitted to their husbands in verses 1 through 6 in that culture because it was a patriarchal society. Women had no rights. They had very little value in society. But into that setting, Peter writes verse 7 where he says, Husbands, honor and respect your wives and love them. That part would have been the shocker to them. Counterculture in their day, certainly countercultural in our day as well. And I'm so tempted to spend all of our time this morning defending to you why the Bible is not just a sexist book and that you can still trust it today. I'm going to do a little bit of that. But the main focus and concern that I have for us this morning is this, is our marriages as a church. And the state of marriage in the church in America today and anybody that wants to be married, if you're a student, look, I know there's some young kids in here. Uh, some of you are not even listening to me right now, and that's fine. Some of you are, are sort of listening. Today's family day, so we're all in here. Uh, children's ministry takes a break on the fifth Sunday, so we're all in here together. And like, but if you want to be, some are even sleeping. And so if you want to be married, though, someday, this is something to listen to. If you're single and you want to be married, if you're married, of course, please my main concern is the state of marriage today. And I want to read to you what I think we desperately need in our day and age in the church. And it's this. There's a slide. We need spouses so moved by the gospel 
that when the inevitable stresses and strains of marriage come, they, those spouses, instinctively, because of the power of the good news of Jesus, and repeatedly run, not walk, toward a great commitment towards one another and a great humility towards one another. I'm going to read that again. This is what I think we desperately need. Spouses that are so moved by the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that though every one of us in this room, and I mean everybody, even if you're like four, you and me and everyone in this room have rebelled against a holy God who is perfect, righteous, and altogether holy. I have said to God throughout pretty much every day of my life, not pretty much, every day of my life, I will do things my own way. That even though I was created by God and for God to glorify him and to love him and to live my life for him, I have spent my life basically setting myself up as the center of the universe, and you have too. And that's our big problem. It's selfishness. It's pride. And yet, in spite of that, God in his love and his grace and his mercy and kindness has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to make the world right again by living the life you and I could never live, all for God, without any pride and nothing but humility, Jesus lived, and then dying the death you and I deserved. That is such good news that when that enters your heart and changes you from the inside out, that should change the way we live. And so we need spouses that are being so consumed by that good news that when the inevitable, and I want to repeat that word, inevitable difficulties of strain and and stress and life circumstances hit your marriage, and they will, they're inevitable, that your first reaction is not to say, well, it wasn't supposed to be hard like this. But instead, you don't walk, but you run towards a great commitment towards one another and a great humility towards one another. And that's what we're going to mainly talk about overarching this whole thing. I want to talk about four things today, though. What is marriage? Setting a foundation. Two, what is this, this passage? It seems incredibly outdated. What is he talking about? What is marriage? What is this? What is true beauty? And then what are we to do with this? First, what is marriage? My wife Becky and I have been married for 23 years, um, and this past summer, we were on a long vacation. We were gone most of July. And while we were gone, we were at a beach, uh, in the same beach, in the same resort, in the same condo complex that we had honeymooned at 23 years earlier. So my parents got a place for us to stay. We met my parents there. And we got to relive our honeymoon setting of 23 years ago. And on the last day of our vacation, we walked around all the different spots where we had walked around on the last day of our honeymoon and taken pictures. So we'd walk around and say, oh, we, we stood here and took a picture. We stood here and took a picture. And of course, I would take Becky's picture all along the way. And it's really cute. Anyway, <laughs> as we sat there reflecting on 23 years of marriage, going, this is where we sat 23 years ago. We started thinking about all the things that have happened. We have lived in three houses. We've lived in three states. We've served three different churches, having planted and started this one. We've had three boys. We are incredibly Trinitarian. I mean, we're all about threes, threes, threes. And then as we thought about it, I just thought of how good God is to us and how, how even though there's been many different seasons in our marriage and some have been very difficult, that God has been faithful in every single one of them. 
And the truth is this. Becky and I still really, really profoundly love one another. We do. We like each other. We love one another. We have fun together. It was so fun to be back at our honeymoon spot with kids, a little different setting. And like, but just having so much fun. But the truth is, we still, after 23 years, really frustrate one another, confound one another, confuse one another, and hurt one another. You think after that long, you'd figure it out, but like we still hurt one another. We still, can, like I don't even know where did that come from with one another. And so if you really want to experiment and put your family life under pressure, strap everybody into a van in your family, okay, and then drive 5,600 miles over three weeks into 14 states and just watch what happens. I mean, it's crazy what goes down. That's what we just did. What is marriage? What is it? There's kind of what we feel it is and what society today kind of says that it is, but then there's actually what God has designed it to be. A marriage is a covenant relationship. It's not just um, a, a, a casual commitment. It's a covenant where an individual man who is created in the image of God and yet fallen and broken joins with an individual woman who is created in the image of God and yet fallen and broken, and they leave their family of origin, we know this, and they become one, the Bible says. Two individuals who now are no longer utterly individuals, they now create a new dynamic becoming one flesh. One flesh. This is meant to be a lifelong commitment. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. We know that's a metaphor at many levels, but Paul says that's a mystery of how the two become one, and they are meant to be one. Jesus even amplified this interpretation and said, Whatever God has joined together, let no man tear apart. In our culture, though, we increasingly see marriage as two individual people who are trying to merge their very individual lives together. And if their freedom is limited or they feel unhappy, we say, I must have married the wrong person. The right person would cause me to be fulfilled and free and happy. And this difficulty that we're experiencing, this is just not right. This shouldn't be. Because I am meant to be an individual who gets what I want, when I want, and so forth. And so I bring my individual personality, my individual goals, my individual money, my individual debt, my individual, all these things in, and you do. We'll see if we can merge these together. We'll try it out before marriage by living together. Now we'll, we'll try now. But if it gets too hard, we're going to bail. I read this great article this, this week called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. I don't think this is by someone who shares the Christian faith. This is New York Times, and it's a fab, fabulous article. It's written by a person named Elaine de, de Botton. I don't think I'm saying her name correctly. O-N, not O-M. <clears throat> She writes this, we see normal, we seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would be this, and how are you crazy? And I would add, 
another good question would be like, and how crazy are you? Because it's not a matter of if, it's a, it's a matter of degree, right? She writes this, the, pl- the problem is that before marriage, we rarely delve into our complexities. Whenever casual relationships threaten to reveal our flaws, we blame our partners and call it a day. One of the privileges of being on our own is the sincere impression that we are really quite easy to live with. And our partners are no more self-aware. When marriage is difficult, we often exceed this is exceptional and appalling instead of normal and something to work through. That's it. We, we think this is exceptional, this is crazy, this is appalling instead of like, no, this is normal. It is hard. It is challenging. And it's something to work through. And then she goes on to say, we would learn, we should learn to adopt a more forgiving, humorous, and kindly perspective. I agree. We need to adopt a more forgiving, even humorous, because if you're truly forgiving and grace-filled, you can laugh at one another and yourself in a kindly perspective. So as you think about your marriage or your future marriage or the marriage of your family, your friends, we've got to redefine what it is. It's not just a casual arrangement. It's a covenant. Now, what is this? What are we talking about today? Submission, calling husbands Lord, stuff like that. What is he talking about? Verses one and two. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of the wives. Twice in this passage, he calls wives to submit to husbands in verse one and verse five. I remind you that verse 7 was shocking to them, not verses 1 through 6. But for us, it's shocking. Let me try to give some background. In this part of his letter, chapter 3, Peter is writing to first century Christians in what is modern day Turkey and helping them bear up under society and suffering because everyone in in their society and day and age was antagonistic to their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone. And so in that setting, he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, live as strangers and aliens. Then he says, live such good lives among the Gentiles that they may see your good deed and glorify God on the day of his visitation. He says that to all of them. Then he goes into this section that we just went through where he says this, Christians submit to the emperor. He's talking about Caesar. Then he says, servants submit to your masters. He's not endorsing slavery. You can go back and listen to that sermon. But instead, he is saying, submit to them that they may be one to Christ. Third, now he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands. In order, these unbelieving spouses, these unbelieving masters, and these unbelieving government officers, he's saying, treat them in such a manner that they may come to faith. When the Christian wife called Jesus Lord, she no longer shared with her husband Caesar's lordship. They were to declare that Kaiser, Caesar, is Lord. No longer. The Christian wife was saying no more. They would gather in their homes to worship their ancestors and the idols of their culture. Literal, not just idolatry like we have in our heart, but literal idols that they would gather around and worship. The Christian wife was disrespecting their family and their culture and saying, no more, I won't do that. And so into that, Peter is saying, wives, show respect to your husband in other ways and live such a humble life before them 
that they may be one through your character. Now, Peter is speaking to a specific case here, but I have to say, we also believe that there's a more generalized principle of male leadership in the home, the husband to lead the wife. Ephesians 5 talks about this in other places as well. So he is reiterating an idea that is taught in other parts of Scripture. Let me try to explain. God created humanity, both male and female, because it was not good for man to be alone. Adam, we know that. Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so we see in creation the equality of the two genders and sexes, utterly equal before the living God. And what I see there in chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, this beautiful expression that the imago Dei, which is the face of God and the image of God, could not be fully expressed in a singular gendered humanity. That without God creating men and women, you don't have a full expression of God and his character. Do you see that? And I hope you understand that. The very creation demonstrates that there is a there is a co-joining of man and, and woman to complete the image of God and to show his fullness. So equality is good. We get that. Men and women are equal. So why is there a need for submission? Men and women are equal in the sight of God. It's this church's belief that men and women ought to be equal in society, that equal pay, equal rights, equal. So what is this talking about, and what do you believe about it? What, how do we live this out? Well, in terms of the family, just like any team, what we believe is this, that every team needs a leader. And when it comes to the family, God is calling the husbands to take the servant role of a spiritual leader. You may or may not agree with that, but that is, that is where we're coming from. And I want you to think outside of what the stereotypes, because almost none of us have seen this done well. If you're thinking the kind of role, you know, stereotypes and, and the kind of thing like, you know, honey, get in there and get me a beer, that kind of thing, you're thinking not biblically here at all. This isn't to enforce traditional roles either. This isn't saying all women submit to all men. Kathy Keller is the wife of a guy that we quote a lot, a lot around here named Tim Keller. Together, they wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I highly recommend this book to you, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And in that book, talking about this issue, Kathy writes this, In Jesus, we see all authoritarianism of authority laid to rest. All authoritarianism. So whether you're a, a police officer, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a CEO, whether you're an accountant, lawyer, whatever you are, a garbage collector, you, whatever roles in which you have over people, you are not to do that the same way that the world does. Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be last of all and servant of all, right? That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so we know that any form of authoritarianism or, or kind of heavy-handed leadership is never, never expressed by Christ in that way. In Jesus, we see all authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Why? Because Jesus submitted to the Father. 
so that when you submit to your boss, when you submit to the government leader, when you submit to your spouse, what you're doing in essence is being Christ-like, who though equal with the Father and the Spirit, and Colossians 1 says of Jesus that all things were created by Jesus and for him, and yet when he was in the flesh living his life, what do we see Christ doing? Constantly submitting his will to the Father, always. And so we don't see weakness demonstrated through submission in the Bible, but actually great power through Jesus Christ. Both men and women get to play the role of Jesus in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. She also writes this, and I believe this to be utterly true. Likewise, in marriage, husbands and wives both have an opportunity to gift submission and exalt one another with love and honor. When looked at, at, when looked at it this way, submission becomes beautiful rather than a ticking time bomb. Now, in verses 5 through 6, Peter also says this, and we've got to talk about it. Peter writes, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him what? Lord. Now, I want you to imagine just for a minute. Uh, you're sitting at the dinner table, and your wife's there if, if, if you're a husband. So imagine, I'm trying to imagine myself. I'm sitting at the dinner table with my boys and my wife, and then I say sometime during the meal, hey, you know, in light of First Peter, what we read today, I've, I just got an idea. What if kind of from here on out, you start referring to me as uh, Lord? How do you think that would go? You know, you don't have to, you have to say it every day, Becky, like, but maybe on special occasions you could just call me Lord. Maybe when the kids have, you know, when they're not around, certainly not in public, but could every once in a while, in order to honor this passage, could you, know, could you just, a little Lord talk, could we do that, you know? You know, how do you think that would go? If you know Becky, uh, you know it would not go well for me. First, Lord is not Lord, okay? It's not the Lord, capital L. It's talking, about, it's talking about respect. Secondly, the more you know about Sarah, the more you understand what he's saying is actually dripping with irony. And I think it's actually the point of what he's trying to get across. And I don't want to undermine the issue either because he's saying a difficult word to our culture. But if you've read the Bible, you've got to say, why did you choose Sarah? Physically, unbelievably beautiful. Now, get that, we would understand that part, but here's the thing. She's so pretty that when they're traveling through foreign lands, Abraham, which they were constantly doing, he would pretend he was her sis brother instead of husband because he was so terrified of what would happen if they found out he was her husband because she was that pretty. So he was weird that way and terrified. <laughs> Second, she was incredibly controlling and manipulative. And I don't mean to slam Sarah, but have you read the story? God promises, hey, Sarah, hey, Abraham, you're getting really old, but I promise you're going to have a kid. And more time goes by, and he keeps saying, no, you're going to have a kid, and guess who's going to be the mom? It's Sarah. 
but she gets impatient and she berates Abraham into taking to himself their servant woman, Hagar. She takes Hagar and they have a son through her instead. Well, how do you think that went? Not very well. Thank you. So then she can't stand it anymore and then she berates she berates Abraham and Hagar to kick them and Ishmael out of the family. So she is not some weak-willed woman. In fact, she's mean-spirited, she's conniving, and she's very, very difficult. Now, why does he use that? Because I think it's like this. I think what he's saying is this. You read about Sarah? She got to the place where she called him Lord. If she can do this, Someone this powerful, this opinionated, this controlling, if she can bring herself, then you can as well. Finally, what I want to say about this is this. I wish we could have a Q&A. I wish there could be a whole section of women up here that have, are doing this well and, and, and marriages and so forth. Maybe for another setting we can. The best thing to do is to find other couples that you really want to emulate if you're a younger married person and, and you're not going to find at New Valley any really weird examples of this. You're just not. The way it looks for me and Becky is this. We're, we are committed to one another. We exercise great humility towards one another, and we are equal in every way. But we're a team, and she graciously allows me to lead that team when, when it's difficult. It's been very rare because I almost never want to do anything that she disagrees with, but there have been times where we absolutely have to make a decision. We have to make a decision, and we're not in agreement, and then I have to think through, what do we do? That's the best way I can explain it. Two very uh, equal people. She is not my equal in many respects because she's greater than me. She's a leader. Um, she knows the word extremely well. She works out of the home until recently. She's taking a break right now. So this is not just traditional stereotypes. I do most of the cooking, okay, and the yard work. But anyway, <laughs> I also grill. I think this is best discussed in community. I think this is best worked out among friends where you can really see mentors that you love and can speak in your life. The next question is this, what is true beauty? And we see here this interesting thing. Do not let your adorning be external. And I think what he means here is only, primarily. Because he then goes on to say, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the clothing you wear. If you take that to be literally, don't let your beauty be shown through hair, uh, jewelry, and clothing. Well, that we'd have Christian nudism, right? <laughs> like, don't be beautiful in your clothing. Don't wear clothing. Okay, we have Christian nudity. So that's not what we're about. But what he's saying is don't let your primary vehicle through which you're expressing your beauty be your clothes, your jewelry, and the braiding of your hair. And it's ironic that the pressure on women has always existed, has all the way, the way back in Peter's day. There is an inordinate pressure on women to look at their looks as the primary which, ways in which you identify beauty. The Republican primary was obvious. We had one female running for the Republican primary, Carly Fiorina, and she had things applied to her that none of the other men could possibly bear up under. And <laughs> my goodness, I could, it was ridiculous. And the same is probably true regarding our presidential candidates. But his main point here is this. True beauty is inward, not outward. In, in our day... 
There is so much eating disorders, there are body image issues and insecurity and sadness because we keep defining true beauty as physical primarily instead of the inner beauty that God always honors above the outward, always. And husbands, one of the greatest ways that you can honor and love your wife and lead her is to keep celebrating the ways in which she's beautiful, outwardly, of course, but primarily inwardly, that character matters so much more than physical beauty, which fades. It fades, but not the heart. Now, this is what true beauty is, and finally, what are we to do? Some of you are walking away from today with this passage, you're going to scratch your head. Some of you are saying, yeah, that's what we believe, that's what we try to practice. Some of you are going, I absolutely disagree with this. But regardless of where you're coming from, what I want us as a church to be committed to is this. It's our original point that we started with. Spouses so moved by the gospel that when the inevitable, it's coming no matter what, stresses, strains of marriage come, you New Valley, whether you're married or not, your plan and hope for your marriage is this, that you will instinctively and repeatedly run, not walk, towards a great commitment towards one another and a great, a great commitment to being humble towards one another. Humility. Love and humility, I believe, are the two greatest virtues in the Christian's life. Love first, by far. Pride is the grandfather of all sins. It bursts every other sin. This is what Lewis, C.S. Lewis believed. It's what I think Scripture teaches. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7 will be our passage for next week. I'm going to steal from it just a moment now, but it's this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he says, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exhaust you, exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, listen to this. Do you want the God that created the universe to be against you and opposed to your life? Then be a prideful person, committed utterly to your pride, and, and, and run and flee from humility. God opposes the proud. He's not neutral towards the proud. Do you see that? He opposes the proud. Several things about that. First, in our marriage, mine and Becky's, pride has been our biggest problem. Pride has. Pride is self-focus. It's the me monster. Me. I have to get what I want. I need what I want. And it's like a reflex that says, my opinion is right. My beliefs and assumptions about the world, about you, about our family, about schooling, about education, about religion, about politics, about this, about this, it's all right. That's what pride says, right? I'm right, my worldview's right, my emotions are right, my assumptions are right, I'm right. Right? Pride is a reflex that not only says I'm right, it says, I have to prove to you that you're wrong. And I won't rest until I'm not only correct inwardly, but you agree with me, or at least I so beat you down that you, sh- you stop talking. Marriage, in my marriage, pride has been our biggest problem, but I thank God, the depths of my heart, that the gospel has worked into our marriage a humility 
that in spite of pride that gets us into trouble, the vehicle through which we get out of trouble, the means by which we untangle the knots we find ourselves in time and again since the first year of marriage to the 23rd has been the humility that the gospel of Jesus has produced in our life because humility is a reflex that says, first of all, pride is foolishness. It's bound up in the heart. It's stupid. It opposes you to God. It has God in opposition to you. If you're a prideful husband, Peter says, God doesn't answer your prayers. Did you see that in verse 7? That if you don't treat your wife the way God is calling you, he literally won't answer your prayers. If you're an abusive, lying, cheating, prideful husband, your prayers aren't being answered. In our marriage, pride is the problem. Humility has been the only way out. Humility is the reflex that doubts your own opinions, that doubts your assumptions and, and your emotions because it starts, humility does, with the, the conclusion, I've already admitted to a holy God that I am so sinful that I deserve death and separation from him for all eternity. You can't become a Christian without humility. Do you know that? You cannot become a Christian. That's just the first step into walking with Jesus without enormous humility. Why? Because you have to admit to a holy God, I am not only not holy, I have opposed your will in my life. I have rebelled against you. That's the beginning place of Christianity. That's the first step. I have sinned and fallen short of your glory and so if you even want to walk with Jesus for a second and enter his kingdom by faith and receive grace, forgiveness, and love, his atoning death, it begins with a humble response that says, I don't deserve any of this because it's all what God has done for me in Jesus. So you can't be a Christian without humility and you can't walk with God without humility. Why? Because humility is the only thing that keeps you going back to Jesus. A lot of times, though, we start with humility. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I forget. And then you keep living in pride. It doesn't work like that. When you're truly in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and keeps showing you, you are filled with pride and you need humility. Humility. And you cannot have a healthy marriage without humility. Because even sometimes when you're right, if you keep fighting to prove yourself that you're right, you're only losing who took the garbage out last? <laughs> Who cares? You can be right, prove that you're right, and then create greater separation between you and your spouse. What are you to do? You're to live in humility. Becky and I have real disagreements. We get really frustrated with each other. We even still really hurt each other sometimes. And the only way that we've been able to live sort of in this humorous, forgiving gentle spirit that keeps being able to unravel and we have been able to keep unraveling our problems is it's been this humility that God has produced in our life and even when it's like sometimes I'll be in an argument and I'll be I'll literally in my heart have this feeling I don't care what I tell people at New Valley I'm going to persist in this I'm going to win you know what I mean like I don't care what I say this time I'm really really right you know I'm just being real here like I mean I get that intense in my heart but then and you step back just for a moment and you say, no, wait, that's foolishness. That only separates me from my God and my wife. And then the Holy Spirit then comes in and shows you, you've got to repent to one another. See, humility doesn't just, it's not just an inward thing. It moves you to repent to one another. Please forgive me. 
what I said was wrong, what I did there was wrong, and you work it out. And the, the humble person will not only repent to the other, but will receive the other's repentance and forgive. Why? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of what? Wrongs. That love keeps no record of wrongs. How can I keep a record against you if you are my bride, if you are my husband? In Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for you, you have the resource to be humble, forgiving servants of one another, A, and you have the resource to be confident children of God, which you also need. You need to be humble and you need to be confident. And in Jesus Christ, you have both of those things. Jesus loved you so much that the Father sent the Son and the Son willingly laid down his life for you. In turn, may we turn from our pride and live humble lives, especially in our marriages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this enormous resource in Jesus as an example of humility, who though he was equal with you, the Father, he did not consider that equality something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a servant, serving us even to the point of death on a tree and having our sins nailed there so that we would be truly forgiven. Oh Lord, may that work itself into our marriages, into all of our relationships, into our parenting, into our work. May we treat one another with great humility and empathy because of Jesus. It's his, in his name that we pray. Amen.